Minor coaches, we're going to be talking about everything and anything to do with Canadian university football. Uh, so we're going to jump right into it. McMaster had a bunch of different coaching changes this year, especially they just recently fired Greg Knox, as as you know, Maddie. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I guess Greg Knox got in a bit of an altercation on the sideline during one of the games, not quite sure what was said, resulted in a suspension that eventually he was let go by McMaster. Really caused a lot of uh, stir up here at McMaster. I want to know your thoughts on that, Tom. Yeah, uh I think I think obviously with this last uh, kind of altercation, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, that's what I've been hearing a lot of around the campus. I think um, a lot of the other different faculty had an issue with him. It's something uh, here and there kind of thing. Uh, certainly the altercation, while uh, warranted the suspension, I don't know that that on its own would have warranted a firing. So that's why my thought is there must have been something else that was going on uh, to warrant that or to, uh, to justify that kind of thing. Uh, but you were on defense with him as well for a couple of years. Right? Oh yeah, I was there for two years. So what did you think about him when he was a D coordinator? Honestly, I thought he was hilarious. Very dry sense of humor. I could totally see him um, rubbing people the wrong way for sure because he wasn't the type of guy who would if you weren't doing something right, he would just tell you and mm-hmm. he had like a, like I said, he had a very dry sense of humor. He was hilarious though. Honestly, the guy was a winner. His plays were the most complicated things I've ever seen. I think physics was less complicated than his defense <laughs> to be 100% honest. Spent a lot of time in the film room with him. I know a lot of guys were kind of upset to be there for hours, but every year he was there, we went to the Vanier Cup. So the guy, obviously, from a coaching perspective, Nexus to no perspective, knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really odd, too, because uh, my last year in 2016, I got a chance to uh, be under him as when he was the interim head coach. And uh, it really seemed that I guess he felt like he needed a stronger kind of presence in the locker room kind of thing because he would call guys out or he would call certain positions out, like say like, you know, the O-line wasn't working hard enough or the D-line slacking off and things. And I felt like he kind of targeted people um, and almost not demean them, but like tried to focus on them for something to motivate them and the rest of the team. And I don't know that that got... Uh, over the best. Uh, but like you said, when he was a defensive coordinator, I obviously was on offense, didn't get a big chance to you know work with him. But whenever I did, he was always that same kind of dry humor, but like genius would spoke with you with respect. But, you know, when you messed up, he'd let you know about it. Um, So I'm just – it was very surprising to see him do so poorly uh, because I know there was a bunch of even some of the former players that uh, had issue with him as well. But like you said, if you're not accustomed to that kind of dry sense of humor and uh, how he can speak, it can really rub people the wrong way. Um, But obviously his uh, his replacement, Stefan Potasik, he's back again uh, after a – Coaching carousel. He was started off with the tie cast and then went to UBC for a year and is now back here. Um, seems to be a really positive uh, impact on the campus already. What are your What are your thoughts, Maddie? Honestly, I think Stefan Potasic right now is probably the perfect hire for this program. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I feel like he's kind of the fire extinguisher to the fire right now. And I feel like he already has a lot of good connections with people in the university. So I feel like people are going to welcome back with open arms. I don't think like when I was there, I. No, no one ever really talked bad about Stefan Potasic. He was just like a really nice guy. Like you couldn't really like say anything bad about him. So, perf, honestly, this is 
I think the perfect hire. I mean, they already know what they're getting with him. I don't know if there's anyone better out there you could bring in. Yeah, absolutely. With uh, well, like I said, with a lot of the rumors and things that we heard before about Knox, you know, going against a lot of the faculty, not going against them, but rubbing them the wrong way. Certainly, um, bringing in somebody like Coach P is now you no longer have to start from a negative point where it's like the football team is like this way. He's already got this uh, great relationships with everybody he's worked with before, so he's already in the positives. Mac is already happy to have him back and. I think that's just a huge win. Absolutely. And honestly, one thing I'll say about uh, Stefan Batasic. So I remember when I was getting recruited, I go to other schools and do the visit. Stefan Batasic was the only coach that sat me down and said, okay, we're going to talk academics. We're going to figure out what program you're going to take. And I, it was actually really good for me. That's kind of the reason why I decided to go to Max. I know, oh, I'm going to have a good support system. I'm going to have good academics. I went to other schools and you know, talk football would be great. And they'd tell me what the program's plan was. And I would get in the car, be driving home with my parents. And they go, so I think the school, I'm like, yeah, you know, the football team seems great. You know, everything seems great, but I don't know program. What am I going to take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think he really stressed that academics part and it, it really showed through. Um, but especially with anything else, I've heard some other stories from other uh, recruits or some of my other friends who went to other schools and things and even called other coaches and just said, hey, you know, I just wanted to let you know, like, I'm not going to be going to university this year, going to go to somewhere else. And they've been like almost childish about it. Like, oh, yeah, good luck with that. And like hanging up the phone, like this is like an 18 year old kid who wants to go to a university. You're like a 45 year old man. Why don't you just calm down? Do you know what I mean? But uh, Coach P never was like that. I don't actually because I wasn't that highly recruited. So when I did go to Mac, all the other schools like good riddance. We didn't want this guy anyway. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I can't help you there. <laughs> But even um, you even had, uh, I'd say, a, a kind of negative experience for certainly at Mac, you know, switching because uh, you started off as a D lineman, you went over to an O lineman as well. So um, in your opinion, do you think that was handled very well or no? What do you mean by that? Like, were you given ample amount of time to make the transition? Did you feel like they put you in the best possible scenario to win? You know what? Honestly, when I was there, I really felt sorry for myself and thought, you know, it's everyone else's fault but mine. I had a really negative attitude about that. But to be honest, like, I kind of felt when I got switched to O-line, it happened a little bit too soon. I had the proper time to prepare. But, you know, at the same time, it's kind of my own fault. You know, I should have been better on the defensive line. I kind of have touched you about it before. So when I was coming out of school and I was a recruit, I was kind of going, oh, I'll play anywhere. I'll play, you know, defensive tackle. I'll play defensive end. I'll play offensive line. Because of that, I really never got good at one specific, like, position. Mm-hmm. So because of that, like, I, I honestly believe I don't have the body type to play offensive line because I have really terrible needs. Mm-hmm. If I was smarter, I would have focused on my speed and that would have been a defensive end. I wouldn't have ever gotten that position. I don't think, like, I, I, I put a lot of blame on myself, basically. I, I, I don't think, uh, like, I think the coaches were trying to make the roster fit. You know, I think they had some good defensive ends they were recruiting that year and they kind of said, we need to make the roster fit. So... You know, their jobs are on the line as well. So I can't really knock anyone that happened. And to be honest with you, everything I learned on that football team has helped me in the work world. Mm-hmm. So honestly, yeah, at the time it was a very negative spirit experience. But looking back at it now, I'm very glad I went to Mac. I'm very glad I went through all that. Yeah, I, I'm personally very glad you moved over to the O-line because yeah. it was jokes in those meeting rooms, man. That was my favorite year, to be honest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I Well, when you got when you hit that point where you just don't care anymore and you're just sitting in the meeting room like, yeah, sure, whatever, man. That was... <laughs> The best, the absolute best. Yeah, I remember me on the scout team. That was uh, that that was uh, yeah. I want to get into that. 
but yeah, along with that, uh, Stefan Potasic, he's also got two new uh, uh, coordinators or coaches, you, you could say. Uh, one of them is Corey Grant. He was the receivers coach over at the Hamilton Tiger Cats. OP. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he helped out a lot with McMaster as well. I'm not sure if he was there when you were there. No, he wasn't. Um, but he was, he was. I remember him being there at a training camp or two. Um, and then also Todd Galloway, who was the former interim head coach at Guelph last year, uh, brought over to be a recruiting coordinator as well. Um, I think these are pretty good, pretty good hires. Obviously, you know Corey Grant from your high school days. So what do you think of him as a coach? Honestly, I think he's a great guy. I remember, yeah, he went to Orchard Park. So he's kind of like the famous, that's my high school, Orchard Park, by the way. In case <laughs> anyone knows, it's a real school. Uh, he was kind of like everyone at Orchard Park knew him because he was the only real good athlete really that ever came out of Orchard Park. And besides him and you know, Taylor Black, who was on the basketball team here for a bit. Right. Honestly, my first encounter with him was at McMaster's uh high school camp they had in the summer mm-hmm. and i remember i had like the blue op helmet and i'm walking off the field and he looks at me and he's like i know i saw an op guy walking off the field <laughs> and i kind of like laughed I'm like oh he's serious <laughs> i just sprinted <laughs> off and i'm like yeah so he's got the discipline aspect that's for sure yeah absolutely but did you ever have the experience with him as like uh, for a proper coach like i had his brother to be honest okay. his, his brother uh would help out more with I know he helped out with the Halton Cowboys, right? Yeah, which is the yeah, OBFL yeah. team off. They're even a thing anymore. I don't think so. Honestly. I don't think. So. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think the Stamps kind of took over there. Yeah, but he was his brother was there quite a bit. And he was very vocal and kind of crazy to be honest. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so the other uh, the other person that they brought on is also Todd Galloway. Um, he was the interim head coach, like we said, but he was also the offense coordinator. Uh, he was o- the OC there for I think about six or seven years, uh, including when they won in 2015 the Yates Cup and they beat Western in Western. Um, I'm not sure. Like when I think of Guelph football, especially when when you and I played, I don't think high powered offense. You know what I mean? No, not at all. Uh, and that's not a knock against him whatsoever. He may be more methodical, um, but they had great guys. Like uh, I'm specifically thinking of um, Rob Farkerson, who was the 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 running back for them. That guy was a nail gun. Uh, I I don't know what it is, but like seeing a running back there with like nothing on his arms, no gloves, no tape, no nothing. It was just like. This guy's an animal. Yeah, he was really, yeah, he was an animal. Honestly, the thing I remember about Guelph the most when I was there is all the different jerseys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was insane. I remember the first game we played, I'm like, I thought we were playing uh, Guelph, and I, I, I thought it was Waterloo at first. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and had just so many jerseys, and they had the swag going over there, that's just for sure. They were like the Oregon of the uh, CIS at Yeah, one point. and like, I... Obviously, if you're on the outside looking in there, you're like, oh, screw these guys. They've got all these jerseys and things like that, whatever. But no matter what, that is helping the league, you know, because being an Oregon, like Oregon is the exact same kind of thing in the States where they constantly have new jerseys out every game and all that. And kids are drawn to, you know, having the swag and having brand new stuff every single day. So if more kids are going to come to your school because of that, it's a recruiting ploy. I think that's a great thing. But if like... It's once again, the OUA is coming in and they're saying, well, you're only allowed now three different jersey types, which was literally nicknamed the Guelph rule because of that. And it's like, it's once again, it's pandering to the idea that other teams don't have the money to have so many jersey types. So we're going to restrict everybody else so that it's a fair playing field instead of like trying to promote the idea of, okay, these guys have this advantage. You have like the advantage of your history of doing things. This is your advantage. Like building that up instead of taking things down. Do you know what I mean? I 100% agree with that. Cause I, I don't feel like they were doing anything wrong no. by having a lot of jerseys. Like I felt like it was just like they, they were willing to put the effort and money into the team. Good for them. I remember even like, like you said 
that was a great uh, recruiting ploy Mm -hmm. because I remember the year before I went, they were two and six. They were kind of a bit of a laughing stock. And I remember, so I was from the Golden Horseshoe area. Like I played in Hamilton, Niagara, and Burlington. And I remember seeing their recruiting class that year, and I was like, wow, they literally got every like good player I know. Yeah. Like they're going to be pretty good. And I remember, and like a lot of people went because, like, oh, you know, the swag, the jerseys, right? Like, you know, we want to look good, you know, look good, feel good, play good. I think they were, what, six and two, seven and one that year. We ended up actually playing them in the. Yates Cup. Yeah. We won, by the way, but yeah, yeah. yeah, we played him in the Yates Cup. Yeah, but like, once again, it's the same kind of thing. It's it's brought another uh, group of kids out to this, uh, uh, to their team, whatever. I remember in my year, it was in 2011, I went out to a recruiting trip. Uh, I went to Guelph and I went with uh, Daniel McDonald, who we played with, who was uh, an all star long snapper. Like, he, realistically, if he didn't have so many injuries, he probably could have gone down to the States for that. He was in the CFL. Yeah, he was. Um, and then uh, the other guy that I was with was John Rush. John Rush happened to be like one of the best linebackers that they ever had at Guelph. They moved him all around and things, but that was like a taste of their recruiting class. Both those guys went to Guelph and then they had one of the best recruiting classes in 2011 and 2012 and then they go to a Yates Cup in 2012 um, and then 2014 as well and then they win it in 2015. So that those kids were directly affected by all of the swag and everything that Stu Lang brought in, which positively affected the program and is only going to do more great things. Like it's the idea of like, like Laval Laval has a bunch of different jerseys. They don't have quite so many as Guelph did by any means, but they have so much money from all their boosters and things. And nobody is like restricting them by any means. This is, you know, this is the standard. If you want to get out of this conference, you need to beat this team. This is what the, uh, the standard is. And then you challenge everybody else to try to meet that instead of saying, hey, Laval, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, to try to give it a fair game. Because then that almost diminishes our game. And we're already having struggles of getting people out to games and things like that. So um, I think whatever you can do to promote things is definitely the way you need to go. 100%. And I obviously don't want to compare uh, the OUA to Quebec because the rules are a little different. I think they could have guys that are like 30 yeah. playing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. playing football. It's insane. I remember... Uh, I got hurt my first year mm-hmm. and everyone went up to Laval for a preseason game and I was like bummed I didn't get to go and then everyone came back and they're like, Yeah, we just got thrown around. <laughs> <laughs> like, they were like just old guys, man. Like I think they're they had that siege up there. Yeah. So coming out of high school, they get two years of junior college. So by the time they're actually playing university, they're in like really your their third year, but they're in their first year of eligibility. Yeah, so it's just like a huge oh, age yeah. problem. It's just terrible. Well, so uh, to try to combat that, uh, I know that the CIS put out a rule saying you can you have to complete your five years of eligibility within seven years of graduating high school, and they don't count CJEP as high school. Um, so it's technically they have until they were uh, grade eleven. Um, to use up their five years within seven. So before, I know there was a bunch of guys when we played Laval in 2011 that were like, uh, they did four years at CJEP and then went into into uh, the university itself and played for another five years. So the quarterback that we ended up playing was like 29 years old or something. He had like a wife and a kid. And it was like, how is this, how can that be possible? It's It was, it was nuts. So they put in this rule and then... Um, Try to make it like uh, fairer, I guess you could say. But still, you and I both know, to those of you who don't know, the aspect of playing against somebody when you're 18 and that person is 21 or 20, 
to have two extra years of working out and being on a professional style team, like even CJEP is closer to university level than it is to the high school level. So they're getting better coaches, better everything. And then moving on to university, that's like an automatic positive uh, bump that you get from there. Um, but it's also like, I'm very surprised that more people don't go out there and recruit. You know what I mean? Uh, I know, I understand it's very like French speaking, but like, if you can bring those people over there, and it's the same thing with the guys in the CJFL as well. You know, if you've got older people who are playing at a higher level, why don't you just go out there and recruit them? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It just it just seems to make sense to me, but um, I don't know. That's just me. And uh, there's been a lot of times where uh, I've thought that this is something that is so blatantly obvious that every team should be doing, but that's why we're the recliner coaches. Exactly. That's <laughs> why we don't actually have real jobs yeah. in coaching. We're just chilling on the couch thinking we know it all. Yeah. If you ever hand me that clipboard, I'd be like, uh, ask mad, ask mad, ask mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. When I was, when I was uh, playing in high school, we had uh, an offensive line coach. Uh, Offensive line coach who then turned out to be the offensive coordinator as well. And uh, to give you his credentials, he had a an illustrious playing career at U of T. Um, he was a part of the group of people that went for the first time ever to go 0-48, I think it is. They didn't win a single game. That's incredible. And so to commemorate that, they every single person on the team got tattoos. That's awesome. Commemorating the fact that you were the worst team, the worst recruiting class Ever. I put that on my resume. <laughs> I think that would stand out. I'd be like, whoa, that's insane. That's almost an accomplishment itself. Oh my God. But he, so he was our, uh, he was our coach. He was our uh, offensive coordinator kind of thing. And one night, me and my, one of my buddies who happened to be the, the quarterback were playing Madden and we go, I think I recognize this play. And we pull out our playbooks and it is play for play freaking Madden going all the way down for our passing routes and everything how did that work though because in the states it's 11 guys on the field so he just <laughs> drew in an extra person so there was always one guy who was like an outlet receiver so there'd be like um, you'd have like a clear route an out route or an in route and then there's one guy who's just doing like a quick hook or a quick drag in case anything else isn't there wow yeah that's, it was that's it, a rookie mistake <laughs> yeah. I think actually you know why I knew that because I remember my dad and we were in I was in house league he was actually looking at Madden using a coach, us like 10-year-olds. And he's like, this is incredible, right? These players are, oh, it's 11 guys. <laughs> he just like threw it away. He's like, well, all right. And then- well, yeah, like you can't you can't motion. You can't do anything. Like it's a completely different game, especially with the fields being so much wider and things. You can't be doing that. Oh, wait, wait, you're on the O-line. Let me tell you, when I was in training camp McMaster, I had Greg Knox throwing his defense ass. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly think I had a better chance of figuring out every number in pi. Yeah. I, I remember actually I talked to Mike McDonald yeah. at University of Guelph and I was telling him like, yeah, like in training camp, I was just, you know, so confused, messing up everything because that defense is just insane. He's like, you think you were confused? We were up all night trying to figure out how to, yeah. how to beat that defense. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. it, it was insane. Yeah. I, I even remember I went up to uh, Ben D'Aguilar, who you know, but for everyone who doesn't know, he was a CIS All-Canadian. He won the uh, the lineman of the year for all of Canada. He set a brand new sack record, which I think actually our boy Mike Kashik might have broken. Yeah, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. our old roommate. Our boy Cash, man. <laughs> um, but so everything, uh, like, he is obviously an all-star and all this stuff. And I asked him, hey, what is Gator Bean? And he goes, I know what I have to do. 
but I could not tell you if he had a gun pointed to my head what the defense does. That's it. And every single guy it seemed was like that. Obviously, you know, probably like your Mike Daly's or your safeties who need to know more probably would know more of, a, of the defense and more of the scheme. But for the most part, it's like just know what you have to do uh, because nobody has everything in their head except for Knox. Yeah. Oh, and Nick Shorthill, he was uh, a yeah. linebacker from the Ticats now. That guy, like... He just knew everything that was going on in the field. I remember he would just pretty much line everyone up sometimes. It was insane. Yeah. I, I actually I recently found uh, a link uh, on YouTube of our, our 2014 game against Western when we went down to Western and beat them by like a three or four points kind of thing. And there's a lot of times where you see Shorty and he's out and he's like pointing at guys at different places and things like that. And then also just all around the field just killing Will Finch. Uh, that kid got sacked, I think, six times in that game and was just hurting afterwards. Like, I just, it, it was to the point where you're in the fourth quarter and it's like a close game, but when you're watching it, you're like, my God, just give the kid a break. Like, it was bad, man. I remember I was scared when I'd go in there and Shorehill was in. I'm like, oh, if I go the wrong gap, this guy's going to chew me out. Oh, I'm more scared of him than Knox. <laughs> yeah. They, there's a reason he got nicknamed the bully. Yeah. <laughs> um, still one of my favorite stories. Uh, one of our uh, other good friends, Nick Furlett, um, yes. he was a, a right tackle for us. He actually started in 2014. He was a three or four year starter. Yes. Um, so he was very, very good. Uh, but in 2013, his first ever uh, training camp, we had a defensive coordinator by the name of Kevin Ivan. Uh, legendary Ibo. Yep. And he introduced the idea of an anchor. Um, do you remember that, Matty? Th- that was when the linebacker just nails the tackle, right? Yeah, it yeah. sure is. And uh, the first ever time we get a chance to see anchor at full speed, um, Nick Shorthill, who is one of the strongest guys on the team, comes in and does the anchor play to a first-year offensive lineman who is not suspecting it. And I, I saw Nick's feet replace where his head was within a matter of seconds like he was just decleated went right into the O-line we all did like a domino effect and then I think it was either uh, Mark Mackey who was a defensive end or Mike Kashik just kind of looked around and like walked into the backfield because everybody else was just gone and then the rule came out that was you know what maybe don't do that against your own players yeah that, that would be that would be great um, but yeah so that's that's just a, a small sample of short hill yeah, yeah, he's an animal for sure. <laughs> yeah. Still in the Ticats, I think, right? Yeah, yeah he's still he's still at the Ticats. I think he might have. Uh, so he, I, I believe he had an injury, and he might have. Uh, he's had surgery and things. He's coming back this year, um, but the dude was already like making plays and contributing pretty seriously to the Cats. And this was his what his third or fourth year. Yeah, I think so. He started with Montreal. Yeah, and he got moved over. There, um, yeah. But still, like that's great. And even our boy Mike Daly, who's current state uh, starting safety for the Ticats, he's just signed an extension with them as well. So uh, the boys doing well yeah it's so cool seeing like guys used to play with and even just canadians in general in the cfl that's why i kind of want to get into that new football league oh down, yeah down there it's the, the aau or the aaf yeah yeah for sure what, what do you think about that um i'm i'm a, personally i'm a huge fan of it just because it's it's more football during the one part of the year where there wasn't supposed to be any more football um and i'm always down to watch some more uh but I, I love the, the the rule changes that they've had so far. There's no kickoffs. Uh, if you go for an onside kick, you were telling me you have to do it like a fourth and ten. Yeah. Uh, like that's that's great uh, additions in my opinion. Um, and I think they've got a lot of free reign. They, they can do whatever they want to do that the NFL would be limited by. Um, so that idea is just fantastic to me really uh, so I'm a big fan of it. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts? Honestly, I love it because I think now, a lot of Americans down there are going to just play in that league that aren't making the NFL and stuff come up to Canada. I don't have like a problem with Americans come up to Canada. I just think it's way better when we have Canadian athletes playing oh, yeah. the CFL. Like it'd be great to see a Canadian quarterback 
start a whole year. I think Buckley, Andrew Buckley, yeah. was the closest to actually starting recently. I remember even when we were at Mac, Kyle Quinlan, yeah. absolute stud. Yeah. Never, never got a shot in the CFL. And I'm like, I don't know like the whole story behind you know, what happened, but I was like, you're telling me that guy wasn't good enough to play in the CFL. And then you have you know guys like Ricky Ray, who are legends. I always think, where are these quarterbacks come from in the states like i just looked up ricky ray he went to sacramento state yeah what division's that in uh it's got to be division four or five yeah or something. I, I even know like where are these guys coming from like how do you know who's a good like prospect from yeah. america coming up like i don't understand i remember even too when i was looking at some of the draft prospects besides the cis guys there'd be guys in the states on there like from certain schools i haven't heard of down there and i'm like okay so these are canadians that are in the ncaa right mm-hmm. no some of them are just like full American. I'm like, so did they just realize I'm not going to make the NFL and I'm going for the CFL? Like I just, I found that part really confusing. Yeah. And it's, it's really strange because it seems like there is definitely a more of a pull to make sure that, uh, you get like the best of the tier two or three American players to come up to and be a part of the CFL. Whereas it's like, the whole reason that I was obviously I watched the Great Cup because I am a fan of the CFL, but I was really pulling for the Sam Peters this year because our friend Kashik plays on there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd love to see Kashik get a ring. You know what I mean? And obviously he did, and we went Bucky. Um, but like to see that, or even like I was appreciating uh, before he uh, he got there, um, watching Derek Wiggins, who used to be at Queens. I used to play against him and see him like make the transition from being a defensive end to a defensive tackle, and seeing him like progress and do well. Um, Eric Mezzalier now who's out at Calgary as well he's been killing it and uh, doing really well on special teams and things and watching him that's been you know what I mean like if you see your buddies you see people that you kind of know it's just going to make the game better you know it's crazy too actually about Derek Wiggins so the other day uh, I was in my room and I saw this picture I had when I went to this uh, football camp I think it was like grade 9 or no grade 8 or 9 mm-hmm. and I saw on there Derek, Wib- Derek Wiggins and then our boy Etre Latanzio, oh, or our boy Tyler Goldsworthy's boy, <laughs> <laughs> was in that picture. I'm like, wow, I was literally in a picture with like guys in the CFL. Yeah. This is crazy. What happened to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you still say Latanzio's name, Goldsworthy just starts sweating. Yeah, that guy was an animal. I've never seen like a nose tackle athletic to this day he is the absolute hands down bar none the best player i've ever played against really eh? he just um the speed the strength and his reaction time were unlike anything that i've ever seen before you could see guys like we'd be watching film and we'd be saying he's going offside but when you do like super slow-mo as soon as the the tip of the ball is moving he's moving and so like if you're not anticipating the snap count and like moving on the h of hut he's already beaten you it was crazy. And even um, the first time where we went to uh, we went to play against Ottawa in 2014, we had one of our younger guys at the time, Dan Yunin. Um, he, yes. w- he went in for uh, Zach just to take him out and make sure that he got some rest. And I watched this man, Etor Latanzio, by the way. To be a, a nose tackle, typically you want them to be like 6'5", maybe like 340 kind of thing. You're really like hunkering things down. This guy was maybe like six foot, I think like 260. If I'd I, say last thing was like 240. Yeah, I think that's being generous. Um, and he would he took Dan Union, who was at the time around probably 340, and tossed him over top of his, his shoulder threw him to the ground and then went and chased down a quarterback. And I remember getting Dan up and him looking at us and being like, I've never had somebody throw me. I got thrown. 
I don't know what technique to use to not let that happen. And it was the craziest thing in the world. And he was constantly doing that. And the, the worst part about it was going up to the line and you're like, you're making your calls, you're calling out the defense and things like that. And then you hear something and you look down and Latanzio is on a knee staring up at you singing, I'm a little teapot. It was the scariest thing that I've ever seen because it's like it's like that little kid, that little child doll in the horror movies where you're like, that thing, that thing's going to be the one that kills everybody. <laughs> and he was just staring at us like that. I, like, go through the and I were, oh my God, we were so scared. And, and he backed it up, obviously. He led the league in sacks that year as a nose tackle. That's gross. He got double teamed every single play. Yeah, watching him split that double, the double teams, I was like, how is he doing this with like half his size? I remember poor Marshall Ferguson. I felt bad for him back. <laughs> I remember we had to play. I think we played Ottawa the last game of the season that year. And yeah. They beat us to get in. And then I think, so we had a bye. And then Ottawa won their quarterfinal game. They had to play him again. I remember you guys were like, oh, man. We got to deal with this guy again. I think, I think they were playing against Laurier or something. And I've never been more of a Laurier fan in my life. And Gold's really showed up in all purple and gold. And he was just <laughs> praying that he didn't have to deal with him. But um, the whole issue with that was in 2013, uh, this guy Goldsworthy who we're talking about was our starting center on the O-line. He was a huge beauty, like a uh, great guy. But in 2013... What we normally would do is if you have uh, just a nose tackle in front of you and the guys who are next to him don't have anybody over top of them, they like pop out to make sure that nobody else from any other position is going to crash in or do anything like that. So Goldsworthy, for like 90% of the game, is left one-on-one with the best defensive player in the country and is just, he had his lunch stolen that year. And ever since then, he's been having nightmares. But then we started double teaming him, and it, it was it was fine. But ever since that year, he's always been like a bead of sweat. Every it comes down anytime you say even Ottawa. I know. I know. We gotta wrap this up here, time. But I remember when we played that guy. The that was the very first time I remember prepping for a game, and we changed our whole scheme to block him. It yeah. was insane. That we was changed the, everything. The first and only time I've ever been a part of McMaster where we changed an entire blocking uh, scenario because we've always we were always very confident in whatever we were doing that we could uh, do whatever we needed to, but that was that was crazy. But like Maddie said, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for everyone who's tuning in. Uh, I think this was a pretty successful first show. Yeah, we did okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to like pat myself on the back too much, but I, I will because it's my damn show. Um, but thank you so much for everyone who tuned in. Uh, we will be back once again next week, same time, same place. Um, there's also going to be a podcast up, so if you miss this show, we'll be able to download it. We'll have links on our uh, social media pages. Uh, I'm at TC Sterling. I'm at MJax56. And uh, you can follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter, and uh, we'll lis- uh, look forward to having you guys next week.